Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, toward the end of the New Testament. We're in a series that we've entitled Stand Strong. Stand Strong. Because the things we're learning in the book of Hebrews will do exactly that. They will help us to stand strong. When you come to the book of Hebrews, maybe you're not aware of this, but there are, through the book of Hebrews, several warnings in the book. And it reminds us of this truth that it's spiritually dangerous for you and I to hear truth and not respond to it. It is spiritually dangerous to see and to sense the presence of God in a place and not respond to it or be changed by it. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is warning us about as we come to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's read it. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer of Hebrews is challenging us. He's warning us. He's calling us to not only pay attention to Jesus, but pay more careful attention to Jesus. Above everything else, before anything else, to think of Jesus. And what he does is he gives us four reasons why this is critical. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, reason number one, pay attention to Jesus because he is God. Hebrews 2.1, we must. It's not optional. It's not if you feel like it. It's not if you're feeling a little more spiritual that day. It's not if you've had a good week. It's not if you've had a bad week. It's not based on circumstances. He says, no, we must pay more careful attention Therefore, to what we have heard. The therefore takes us back to Hebrews chapter 1. And what have we heard in Hebrews chapter 1? We've looked at it the last two weeks. There were no commands. We weren't told anything that we needed to do. All we saw was a declaration of Jesus, a celebration of Jesus. We saw in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God was speaking bits and pieces, literally is the idea. Many times in bits and pieces, but then in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The whole point is, now, 
in our time, in our season, something momentous has happened. Something miraculous has happened. Something we cannot ignore has happened. And that is, though God was speaking in different times and different ways, now he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And every word God spoke pointed to him. And every word God spoke is fulfilled in him. Jesus is not only the decisive word of God, he was God. Hebrews chapter 1 says he's the creator God. It tells us he's the sustainer God, holding everything together. It tells us he's the owner. He not only created it, he owns it. It told us that he's the ruler. It tells us he's the redeemer. Hebrews 1 is a celebration. It is a declaration of King Jesus. And in light of that, there's a command. That's what the therefore is. Because he is the creator God. Because he is the sustainer God, because he is the owner of everything, because he is the ruler, because he is the redeemer, because he's greater than angels, because God's spoken in a lot of ways, but now his final word has come through the Son, who is God. In light of that, there's a command. Verse 2, look at it. Or verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. You could literally translate it, it is exceedingly necessary that we give heed to what we have heard. Kenneth Weiss, the Bible translator, takes the Greek and translates it, says this, you could read it this way, it's necessary that we give abundant heed, that we really think about it that we really pay attention to it, that we really look closely at it, that we're listening to Christ and hearing Christ and focusing on Christ. And this is not a Sunday go to church thing. It's not a prayer meeting thing. It's not a, a retreat or camp thing. What he's saying is, it's exceedingly necessary that we give heed to what we've heard 24-7, 365 days a year. This is not the only time the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this. He's going to mention it in Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 12. Familiar verse, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Be looking to Jesus. So we're listening to Jesus. We're thinking about Jesus. We're looking to Jesus. Let me just say this. None of those things are hard to do unless we don't want to do them. It's not impossible. It's not like, oh, that's going to be really hard. No, if you want to do it, you will do it. But if you don't want to do it, if you're not interested in doing it, if you don't think it's that big a deal, then you will not do it. You listen to Jesus by taking time daily to hear his voice. You think about Jesus by taking time daily to read his word. 
You say, well, it's hard for me to carry a Bible. Well, you can just on your phone, you can have the version app and you can download that thing. I use that thing so many times during the week, I can't even tell you how many times I use that to look up verses, to remind myself of verses when I'm talking to people. I say, well, you know, the Bible says this. Let me just read you exactly what it says. I use it all the time. version, free app, best app on the Bible that there is. It will help you to think about Jesus. You can also look at Jesus by getting involved in a life group. As you see Jesus working in the lives of other people, as you listen to them about what he's doing in their life, suddenly it opens you up to the possibility of what he's doing in your life. Things you didn't think about, things you didn't know, things you hadn't seen that all of a sudden are causing you to see Jesus at work in your life. I find this very interesting. The first command in Hebrews is not to work for Jesus, it's to watch him. It's to be thrilled by him. It's to love him. It's to be in awe of him. It's to focus on him. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember how you felt? You knew something had happened to you. You knew you were different. And all of a sudden, your heart began to burn for him. You, you just wanted to worship him, you, you just knew that you loved him, though you had just met him, and you just wanted to be around him, and all of a sudden you realized your desires were changing, and the things you wanted to do, you no longer wanted to do, the things you didn't want to do, now you wanted to do, and you were living your life differently because you were different. If that's not how you feel today, can I ask you what's changed? Jesus hasn't changed. He's not less wonderful today. He's not less real today. He doesn't have less to say today. What's happened? He hasn't changed, but you have. There's a second part of the warning or reason why we need to pay attention to Jesus. Look at it. Pay attention to Jesus so you don't drift away. We must pay more careful attention. The problem is implied in this, and would you notice it's we. So we need to not only pay attention, we need to pay more careful attention and there's a reason why to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. It's possible to drift if we don't pay exceedingly close attention to Jesus, we find ourselves drifting away from Jesus. The word drift is a nautical term. It's, it pictures a ship that is tied up at the pier, but somehow the rope came loose and somehow now the ship is simply moving along with the current of whatever body of water it's on and it becomes what we in popular terms call a ghost ship. Going who knows where. 
driven by the wind, driven by the waves, driven by whatever's happening around the ship. John Maxwell says this, is a great quote for this, no one ever drifted to a desired location. Let me just say this, no one ever drifts into the harbor of salvation. Some of you are spiritually adrift. You've heard the invitation that's given at the end of the service. Some of you have heard it now once, not twice, but a number of times. You know you need to give your heart to Christ. You know you need to rededicate your life to Christ, but you're drifting away. You drift out of the service, you drift out the door, you drift out into the world, and you're no closer to being saved than you were last week, last month, or last year. It's a dangerous thing, as we're going to see. There are Christians, and you are drifting. You aren't closer to Christ than you were five years ago or five months ago. In fact, you would honestly, you have less zeal for him than maybe you've ever had. You're too busy to read your Bible, you're drifting. You're too busy to have time with him and listen to him, you're drifting. Your desire to be in his presence has diminished and now going to church is optional on Sunday and non-existent on Wednesday, you're drifting. You're drifting if you've come to Christ and never been baptized. You're not getting closer to Christ, you're getting farther away from him. And it's not something you intended, it's just something that happened because you become casual in your commitment to Christ. And serving him, and loving him, and being involved with him in an active way. I'm not saying you don't have feelings of affection toward him, I'm just saying they don't make a difference in your life. And the tide of life is pushing you out to sea, you're drifting. You're floating wherever the, the tide of life carries you. And here's the thing about drifting. Just do nothing and you'll drift. You say, where will we drift to? Well, if you're a Christian, you will drift to divine discipline. If you're not a Christian, you will drift to eternal punishment. This is why the writer says in, in chapter 2 and verse 2, look at it, it's the third reason to pay attention. Pay attention to Jesus or you'll face punishment. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. Here's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, the law was given on Mount Sinai to Moses and scripture tells us angels were involved. We don't understand the extent of their involvement, but it is repeatedly said they were involved, so they're involved. So here you have a covenant that's given by angels, and it's a comparison from the lesser to the greater. We have a covenant that wasn't given by angels, but was, by, was given by the Son of God as he came to earth and became a man, and as he laid down his life, and he shed his blood for you and I. Big difference. And he's saying, if a covenant that came by way of angels had within it punishment for disobedience, punishment, you could say, for people who had drifted. 
What kind of punishment? Well, we've talked about it, that if you broke the Sabbath, you were killed. If you took the Lord's name in vain, you were killed. You say, what in the world? And again, we've said that what happens in the Old Testament physically is a picture of what happens under the New Covenant spiritually. When you break the Sabbath, death sets in. We were made for a one day and seven rest. And when you violate that, you pay for it. I mean, you can take a Sabbath once a week. You can, you know, rest from your labor, reflect on what God has done, enjoy your family, take a nap, read a book. Or you cannot take a Sabbath and God will allow you to have a Sabbath when you have a heart attack and you're laying in the hospital. See, a lot of, a lot of the problems people have is they, they don't honor the Sabbath. They don't honor the Lord. I'm just simply saying, we could go down the line and name that, name those things. What he's saying is in the Old Covenant, there was punishment. But in the New Covenant, look at this. It says, how will we escape if we ignore, and I think a better translation, the ESV, the New American, the King James, New King James Version used the word neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the answer to that question? You won't. If under the Old Covenant there was punishment, under the New Covenant there is equally that possibility. You say, but John, wait a minute. Wait. You preach Romans and we're under grace. Being under grace does not mean there are no consequences for sin. We have to understand that. God can forgive sin, but that's not to say God does not discipline his children with punishment. You, you want an example? You say, well, give me an example. Well, in 1 Corinthians, people were taking communion in a way that was unworthy of the Lord in his body. And here's what Paul says, for this reason, because you're doing that, for this reason, many of you are sick. And some have even died. So let's not be foolish here, and let's not think that Christianity means we just do what we want, and because we're under grace, there's absolutely no consequence, and we can just ask God to forgive us, and he just kind of winks at us and says, well, I love you anyway, you're not, you're not perfect, and I get that, and so it's all okay. No, that's not how that works. Paul says in, the, in Romans 6, the chapter on grace, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? And sometimes we just simply need to hear the balance so we have the whole truth. Because there's some people who think how you live doesn't matter, and that's not true. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of that. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, we'll look at this later. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. That's talking about Christians. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore or neglect such a great salvation? I mean, really, you've got to understand. You say, John, you're not telling any funny stories today. I'm sorry, that's not going to help you. It's a very serious word. This is a word that should prompt every single believer to stop 
to do an inventory, to say, Lord, search me, to ask themselves, am I growing closer to Jesus or am I adrift away from him? This is what this is about. It's a serious word. This isn't like, don't neglect to pay your taxes or don't neglect your right to vote or don't neglect to have your faucet dripping so your pipes don't freeze. This is a shocking word for believers and unbelievers. Because honestly, most people do neglect our great salvation. Let me put it in these terms. How many people do you know who continually think about Jesus, meditate on Jesus, worship Jesus, talk about Jesus? I found this to be true, that it's, it's very unusual. I think of certain people in the congregation, but when you're just out socially with them, how many people talk about Jesus? How many people talk about the Lord? It, it, it is not as common as it used to be among believers because people are drifting. You talk about what's on your heart. You talk about what's on your mind. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If all you can talk about is politics, and politics are not wrong, but if that's all you can talk about, then that's what's in your heart, and that's what's the priority, and it's crowded Christ out of the conversation, which is tragic. I'm all for sports. I love sports. My team is not something to really celebrate right now. But if all I talk about is sports and I don't have room to bring up Christ, I'm adrift. Do you treat your walk with God in a way where you talk about him all the time, where you talk to your mate, where you talk to your friends, where you talk in conversation what he's doing in your life, what you've seen him do in the lives of others, what you're experiencing? Do you seek the presence of God on your, on your not only your life, but on your home? Do you, do you desire to have him in your home so that when people come in the door without anybody saying anything, they're like, oh, the Lord is in this place. Do you value the friendship of the Holy Spirit and your access to the throne of grace? Do you love the word of God and feed on its promises, reading the Bible and celebrating his goodness and his grace in your life? Or do you treat it like your will? The paperwork on the car you purchased or the home you purchased, you sign it and then you put it away in a filing cabinet somewhere and it has no daily effect on you. I mean, this really boils down to, are you serious about serving God or not? And honestly, for some, and this I think should be the concern of every pastor who pastors is, there are some in the church who think they're saved and they're not. Because if none of what I've talked about resonates with you, if none of what I've talked about convicts you, if in fact you're saying, well, I don't think it has to be like that, then maybe it's because you're not saved. I'm not saying you didn't have an encounter with Christ. I'm just saying it wasn't saving in nature. And the proof is there's an absence of fruit in your life. 
James says, if a, if a man has faith but does not have works, can such a faith save him? The answer is no. If nothing in your life testifies to your love for Christ, then you have every reason to be concerned. Jesus said as much in the parable of the sower and the seed. He says the farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. Every single one of us should be sowing the seed. We're sowing it. Every time you talk about the Lord, you're sowing seed. Every time you tell about his presence or you tell about the miracles or you tell about the baptisms or the salvations and then you weave it back to, do you know Jesus? You're sowing seed. But there are realities to that that we must be aware of that Jesus wanted us to understand. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message. The footpath's hard ground. The condition of a person's heart determines what happens with the word they hear. He says, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those who can hear the message or who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. We see that every week. You hear the gospel, you hear the need to give your heart to Christ, you hear the need to rededicate your life, but in the very instance the word is going out, you're saying, I don't think I have to do that right now, is that you know it's the devil. He, the last thing he wants is for you to get saved. The last thing he wants is for you to rededicate your life. So he steals the word and with it the conviction and you walk out no different than when you came. Even more dangerous for you is if you come long enough, you can be the spectator judge who is able to say, well, that was a good sermon. That wasn't as good. That wasn't his best day. Oh, I like that song. That song I'm not so big on. And you become a connoisseur headed to hell. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. The word goes out and they're like, yes, I love this. I want that. Watch what happens. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. You're not one of those Jesus freaks, are you? Uh, well, I thought I was for a minute, but something's wrong with me. They walk away from the gospel. Guess what? They were never saved in the first place. Because the proof of salvation is not foliage. It's not if you look like a Christian. It's if you produce fruit like a Christian. There are some people who come forward and they are temporary converts at best. John put it this way. I don't have time to look at it. He said, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. People who come seem to embrace it, then disappear who knows where. Obviously, some people go to other churches. Some people don't go anywhere. Thinking they're saved because they made a decision, kind of like, well, I bought fire insurance in case I ever need it for hell. But that's all that decision was, which is not a salvation decision. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out 
by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things. So watch this, no fruit is produced. It's faith without works, and faith without works is dead. If you, if, if you would tell me, well, I gave my heart to Christ, but when you look at your life, Paul says, examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you be in the faith. Like the children's song, if you're saved and you know it, then your life should surely show it. But if when you look at your life, there's no evidence of knowing the Savior, it's because you don't. And that ought to terrify you. To think you're saved and find out you're not. To think you're saved and to have the rapture come on a Sunday morning and find yourself with others in this auditorium while hundreds or thousands are gone. This, this is serious. This is more important than anything else on your agenda today, tomorrow, or for the rest of your life. I'm telling you, it's that important. And if I seem serious, it's because it is serious. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest. And the harvest varies. It's 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as what was planted. Listen, you have to pay attention to Jesus. Let me give you one last reason why you should pay attention to Jesus, the words you've heard. Pay attention to Jesus because the Bible's true. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The Bible's true. What I'm telling you today is 100% true, totally true. And there are four witnesses that speak to its truth. Witness number one, may I call to the stand the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation, which was first announced by the Lord. What was his message? Matthew chapter 4, he began preaching. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What does that look like? John chapter 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. You will not make it to heaven unless you're born again. Have you been a born again? So I don't get all the big deal about being born again. Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. It's not optional, it's essential. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the first witness. He says this is true. It's a second witness. It's the apostles. 
The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. As Peter comes to the stand, he gives this testimony in 2 Peter 1.16, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. John takes the stand and he testifies, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him and now testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard over and over again. We saw him. We saw him. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. We know who he is. It's true. And then there's a third witness, God the Father, who through signs and wonders testified. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Very interesting, isn't it? We have been given a privilege that is so great at times, I can hardly take it in. Somebody said to me, you act what I love about you is you act like every miracle is the first one you ever saw. I just can't believe it. Are you kidding me? A girl has a sty healed instantly? Are you kidding me? A woman who's 82 and has had osteoporosis gets a DEXA scan and the next day finds out after believing the word of knowledge she's healed? Are you kidding me? A guy with thyroid cancer knows he's healed, goes to the doctor. The doctor says, hey, I just need to tell you, you've got cancer. The guy says, no, I want to scan. And the doctor says, it's gone. You know, we've not seen one. We've not seen 10. We've not seen 100. Last year, we received 2,538 written testimonies of healing. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the signs. We've seen the wonders. In two years and two months, we've seen 4,004 people healed. We've seen it. And it's God's way of saying it's true. It's true. The testimony, the baptism testimony, it's a miracle. Are you kidding me? 22 years of addiction? Free. Is that miraculous enough for you? Is a new marriage miraculous enough? Is a changed life miraculous enough? How many miracles do we have to see to believe it's true? The gospel's true. And God is the one who's testifying to its truth through signs, through wonders, 
and through miracles. And then the writer of Hebrews says, oh, and there's one more. We've, had the, we've heard from the Son. We've heard from the apostles. We've heard from the Father, God the Father. Now God the Holy Spirit testifies. And gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You say, what are those gifts? Well, let's just take it in the narrowest sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, nine gifts. Every time we have a word of knowledge, every time somebody speaks a prophetic word, every time there's a tongues or an interpretation of tongues, every time somebody discerns spirits and demons are cast out, which is happening every single week at James River. You may not see it, it's handled discreetly, but people are being delivered. And every time there's the discernment to know what's happening and to deal with it in Jesus' name, every time there, there are gifts of healing, every time there are the gift of faith where somebody believes God and, and, and stretches out and prays for somebody or they believe God and, and they're healed. When I, I love it when I read the testimonies and somebody says, they, they were given the word of knowledge and I said, that's me. What is that? It's the gift of faith. How would they know it's them? How would they know they're going to be healed? It's me. I knew it. It's not from them. It's from God. And every time that happens, and every time there's a miracle, it's the Holy Spirit saying, this is true. All of that to say, we must pay more careful attention. That pretty much takes in everybody. You say, oh, John, I'm paying careful attention. I believe it, but the writer of Hebrews would put his arm around your shoulder and say, that's good, but you need to pay more careful attention because the danger of drifting is so real and the consequences are so deadly that you and I need to be as on fire for the Lord as we possibly can. And honestly, he couldn't have made it more easy. We're in a season where the presence of God is on this place extraordinarily. And I'm talking about every campus and even people watching online. Let me just wrap it up with this. The good news is if you're drifting, you can put a stop to it. It's not rocket science. You say, what do I do? Repent. God, I'm sorry. I, I repent. I turn from being preoccupied with everything else. I turn from putting my business first so, and, and my, my recreation second. And God, I put you first. Jesus, you're number one. You win every single tie. Listen, if your kids have to ask you if you're going to church, you're backsliding. You're drifting. If they can't even know that on a Sunday, hey, this is what we do as a family. We go to church. It's how we roll. You say, but what about this? What about that? Listen, you just at some point have to decide what's important. 
We're gonna be in church. We're gonna be at the prayer meeting. I'm gonna get my kids in youth group. I'm gonna get my kids in the elementary program. I'm gonna get my kids in the preschool because we're not babysitting your children. We're discipling your children. And we, we, can make, we can make almost more strides in the preschool department than we can in any other department because they just believe it. They're not like, oh, I don't think that's true. No, you tell them, it's, you tell them about it and they believe it. You can repent. You can return to doing the right things. And if you're away from God, or you've never given your heart to God, you can rededicate your life or you can call on God and ask that you be born again. But it's absolutely critical that you do.